Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that connects people who are struggling with their herpes diagnosis to mental health resources, as well as empowering educational resources, community, and other means of support as well. Today, our guest is Jay. What are your pronouns, Jay? I'm a she. She, her. All right. So I will address you accordingly. Um, you reached out to me, right, first? Or did I pursue you? Yeah, no, I, I reached out to you. Because, um, yeah, I came across your podcast at an interesting time in my life. <laughs> so, yeah, thought I'd share my story as well. Yeah. Um, so what is your story? You want to go ahead and go right into it? Yeah, so um, about... I think it was coming on two years now. Um, I was in a relationship and I had been in a relationship for about eight months time. Um, and I got my first kind of diagnosis. Um, so I went to the doctor. Um, there was no kind of history of any of that in either myself or my partner's kind of lives that we knew of anyway. Um, other than the fact that I actually had dated someone before him who had, um, kind of told me about his diagnosis so when I kind of heard that uh, when I kind of found the outbreak I kind of was like okay it's highly likely that that's what it's going to be um so I I had a bit of a a a terrifying moment where you you're at the kind of clinic and they're looking it up for you um they're looking at it and they kind of do a visual um check and they're like okay yeah 90% it is um HSB um but you know, we'll take the swab and everything there. Um, and then I had this weird thing of, okay, well, I'm in a relationship. My partner hasn't got a, a diagnosis or anything there. So then how do I kind of broach this subject with him? Um, so that was the first kind of difficult part of that. Um, and then about less than a year ago now, we have since split up for completely unrelated reasons. Um, and so now I'm kind of in this place where I'm like, okay, well now I'm single, you know, and I kind of had this thing of, oh, I had to tell him like, well, I'm still the same person, you know, kind of thing. And I have the complete opposite of that where I'm like, well, these people don't even know me, so they can't even give me, you know, the benefit of the doubt. And so I'm just kind of, I guess, broaching single life with (laughs) this diagnosis now, which is new. Mm. How recently did you two break (laughs) up? last year around about so coming up to it so wait y'all broke up right as uh the pandemic started yeah so i was actually living in london in the uk um and i'm now back in my home which is new zealand um and basically we broke up i think two weeks before the uk lockdown happened which was lucky timing in in a way because i wasn't stuck living with him during the lockdown but um yeah yeah. Yeah. What was the relationship like before you had your first outbreak? Well, it was still quite new because, like I say, we'd only been together for, I think, eight months by the time I got the outbreak. Um, and it was actually quite difficult at the time because we were doing long distance. Um, so I had come back to New Zealand for a holiday. Um, and then I found the outbreak kind of on, on you know, one of those days. And, um, yeah, so, so we were still quite fresh, um, 
but not so fresh that we weren't comfortable to kind of bring it up in a way. Um, and yeah, I had to I had to give him a call and be like, so I found a bump, and then uh, and then it was just radio silence from him for two days. Um, and then eventually he he kind of you know after I kind of messaged him as well and, and was like you know I am still the same person you know like this shouldn't necessarily change anything if, if you love me like you say you do um and he came round and um you know he was okay with it and then he came and visited me in my home as well but um the really the really bad thing was that we just then didn't communicate about it at all like I think neither of us knew kind of how to how to talk about it and and because it was like a a new thing and we kind of were like well you know we, we, we've not had to deal with this up until this point and I was lucky enough to kind of not have frequent um outbreaks so yeah it kind of just became this elephant in the room that we didn't discuss that we really needed to yeah <laughs> but, yeah had y'all used uh protection I mean, this was a guy right Yes. Have yeah, y'all been yeah. using protection up to the point of your diagnosis? No, no. So we hadn't, you know, so we'd got into that stage of, of being uncomfortable enough to, to not do that. So it was kind of, I think that's what helped with um, kind of the discomfort of being able to talk about it. Because I think from his side, especially, there was a bit of fear about like, oh, um, if you know she's had it this whole time then I might already have it and I think that was his own kind of fear of that as well like I yeah I definitely was fearful to bring the subject up with him but um I would totally been okay to have that conversation and I did loads of research kind of once I had my diagnosis and you know education is something that helps so much and I had like my friends I had some friends who had like had a diagnosis in the past as well and they kind of helped me talk through all of that as well which made a massive difference but yeah. yeah so after you told him about it and you were intimate the next time were more precautions used did you use barriers or did you just continue to have sex as you had been yeah so we kind of just kept having sex as we had been yeah um yeah I, I really like wish there had been that conversation because then a lot of it wouldn't have kind of occurred in my head so much you know um <laughs> But I think it was, again, it was just fear-based from, from both sides. And it was like, well, we've done it before without protection. So what's the difference now kind of thing? Like, mm -hmm. And I think for many people, that's the same situation. We haven't been wearing condoms. So you've been sexually active for eight months without protection. Yeah. And then you have your first outbreak. In his mind, he's probably just like, well, I might have it too. Or I might already yeah. have it. So why change anything up and take precautions now for the remainder of the relationship when for the yeah. first eight months there weren't those particular precautions taken uh and just out of curiosity how did the conversation go early on uh where you decided to go without wearing condoms with one another um it was it was actually like a really unhealthy kind of um start to our relationship in terms of it was just a lot of um drinking and so kind of the conversations we did like the first I think maybe two times um we used protection um three's a charm 
Yeah, I know. I was like, I was like, oh well, I've never tried before. Clearly, I like you, so fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, it was pretty short-lived with the with the protection. Okay. Uh, and I was just asking to gauge what the conversation looked like for you in the beginning with him and then uh, having to revisit a conversation and then not being able to have it. Like, what do you think kept you from having more of a discussion about your sex with one another? Yeah, I think I think for both of us, it was a lot of like emotional kind of immaturity. Um, definitely played like a massive a massive part in that um for both of us we hadn't had like um serious relationships anyways for maybe mine was about four to five years and he hadn't had one since like high school so I think for both of us it was just like our first kind of you know like relationship for a long time and so I guess we were scared to rock the boat in a way. Yeah. So what other things were assumed about your relationship? Was it assumed that you were exclusive or did you talk about that? No, yeah. So that was, um, that was something that was just kind of assumed as well. Like it was just one day we were at um, my place and we were having drinks with our friends. And one of my friends just happened to ask like, Oh, so like are you guys boyfriend and girlfriend now? Yeah. And we just looked at each other and just, like, nodded. And <laughs> we're like, yeah, okay, then. <laughs> so that was, like, the extent of it. Like, we had to have other people kind of help have that conversation. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it now, though, do you feel like the way that the relationship developed was natural? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Like, it was just, it was easy, like, from the start. Um, and, yeah, I guess it was just... A lot of um, a lot of stuff was unspoken, but I guess you know we we could tell we were on the same page. We, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, and I bring that up because going into relationships, going into what whatever the relationship looks like, whether it be casual or have potential for long term, we do so blindly or ignorantly go into relationships under the assumption that our potential partner wants the same thing that we want. And when some things pop up, I think that because we haven't, if we haven't necessarily outlined our own wants and needs, then we just by default conform to what they want. So I asked these questions, you're not in your head. Yeah. (laughs) Because I wanted to ask if you felt that that was happening throughout the relationship, like maybe you were conforming against things that you, inside you, you knew that you didn't want. And then the same thing from him. You knew he didn't like whatever, but he would do it just to make you happy, as an example. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there was there was this massive kind of, there were several elephants in the room in our relationship. Um, and all of that came down to lack of, um, ability to communicate you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um and one of them as well was was just where we wanted to live in the world like that was a a massive issue for us like being from opposite parts of the world and then both of us convincing each other as well as ourselves like that we were okay with the fact that one person would have to sacrifice you know like where they wanted to 
live or where they were in relation to their family or whatever it might have been. So, well, yeah. At what point do you have that conversation, though? Because when you're first meeting someone in a neutral ground, for whatever reason, you being at school, for instance, and then you need to go back home, if you genuinely like each other, at what point do you bring it up? And I, I I wonder how many people struggle with that to talk about things that are more long term, given a short duration of time being with one another. I often say that to me, it's not really about the quantity of experience or the quantity of time that you have with someone. It's more about the quality of the experiences. So in a very short period of time, you can know someone's the one. And over a long period of time, you can look up and be like, this person isn't for me. There's not really a sweet spot there outside of when you feel something needs to be communicated like for instance when you mentioned you were in your head about a lot of things the things that you were in your head about probably stemmed from something early on in the relationship then over time other things just kind of compounded on top of those and stacked and stacked and stacked and now you're in your head about a lot of it to the point where you don't know what's yours and you don't know what's what belongs to the relationship and you don't know what's his so I don't know why I said all of that. Uh, <laughs> circling back to the beginning of it. Uh, yeah. Do you think that had you gone into this with an understanding of where you wanted to be, would you have addressed it right away or would you have waited to see if you liked him? Because this is a really important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, that, I mean, and that is like, that is the ideal question, I guess, in a way you're just kind of like, when's the time to bring that up because it's like you don't want to I guess before kind of feelings get too involved like that's probably or or maybe once feelings start getting involved like a bit more and I know that that can happen kind of organically and you can't always kind of like you're like oh wow I actually really like this person now like and you kind of didn't realize how much that crept up on you um but I think maybe as soon as you kind of realize that that that's like an important time um and then just circling back to like the whole herpes diagnosis now within like being in the dating scene now again I am kind of grappling with that like so when's the time to tell someone about that then you know because you you like you want to get to the point where you trust them and you're not there like um you know oh they're gonna tell all their friends and then my friends or whatever you know um but then it's like but then you know when do you kind of get to that stage of like yeah. And yeah. when do you bring that up? <laughs> that's where I was leading to, um, because now that's something that you're dealing with. So yeah. do you disclose your herpes status? Do you disclose that you want a close relationship or other things that are important to you in terms of how you navigate your relationships? I imagine that from the previous relationship, you learned what you do, don't like, what you do, don't want what you need and can go without. So have you created any sort of relationship values or boundaries for yourself as you go into dating? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I'm older now anyway, so this is like come with age. Um, Obviously, the last time I was single, I was like early 20s, you know, and now I'm late 20s. So it's, um, I think, maturity with age anyway. um, But it's kind of, 
like I choose my sexual partners a, a lot more strategically now. Um, you know, it's not just ah, whoever, you know, like, um, and so I think there's a lot more actually. And in terms of uh, my emotional kind of state as well and, and my relationship with sex now as well, like that's changed anyway because having had sex in a loving relationship and, you know, you feel that that kind of intimate connection there and just just sex doesn't really appeal anymore, you know what I mean? Like it has to be, there has to be something deeper there now in order to, for, for me to kind of even be interested now. Um, and but I think the herpes diagnosis has helped with that as well because it's that added thing of you can't just be like oh well whatever I'm you know like I don't have that emotional connection but whatever I'll just do it anyway because you you've then got that extra barrier of like mm, well do you really just want to do that because now then you've got to go into this whole territory as well so in a weird way I'm like thankful for the herpes diagnosis to kind of have that extra like boundary there I guess mm-hmm. yeah. And what you're speaking to right now sounds a lot like demisexuality, where you need to have some sort of an emotional connection with a person in order to experience uh, attraction or arousal. I mix it up, but that's a real thing because I notice for many people that I speak with, they want a more quality partner that they have a connection with that perhaps is emotionally available so that they feel safe disclosing to that person um, with someone that doesn't have long-term potential if you're just going out and i'm talking like it's 2019 right <laughs> and you may meet someone it's a little bit easier to just hey i have herpes take it or leave it what do you want to do we don't have that anymore right now uh or if we do it's in smaller gatherings and much more weird circumstances. But now a lot of what we're doing has to be virtual. It has to be online and disclosure looks a lot different because now on top of our uh, HSV status, STI status conversations, we also need to talk about COVID testing and are you social distancing and the conversations parallel one another so well I've spoken about this on previous episodes, so I won't go into it as detailed as I normally would, but we are really evaluating people because now we have to ask ourselves, is this person worth getting COVID from in the event that that were to happen? If you were to go into an interaction with this new person and find out that they had been exposed to COVID, is your reaction going to be, I knew I shouldn't have been around this person or is it going to be, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. Uh, I was aware of what the risks were. And I feel like that same conversation crosses over into STI conversations. But when it's assumed going into the interaction and no one talks about it, it's a lot more difficult to navigate rather than having someone initiate the topic of, all right, um, I have an STI or I work in what would be considered a high-risk environment even, right? So all of these kinds of things, if we don't talk about them, then they go assumed. And how often have we made assumptions and been wrong or our assumptions have no anchoring in reality? 100%. 100%. And it's also just this like thing of like... Um 
those stories that you make up yourself, like, um, you know, like in your in your brain, because you have experience, or myself, I have experience with herpes. If there's if someone stops talking to me or something like for some reason my brain just goes that they know they know or something's happened like I don't know like and when I first got diagnosed it was the the most ridiculous thing as well as that um I had a friend who who got colsals we've never like done anything let alone like to do because mine's genital herpes and hers was orally and like we've never connected in those areas of our body shall we say and um straight away though your brain just goes oh was that to do with me did I do something you know and it's just like it's just insane these stories that you make up in your mind and like this is something that I'm having to kind of delve into a lot more as well it's just the workings of the mind um and kind of ego and how any of that has to do with that oh sorry I don't know oh I thought that was mine I was like I'm pretty sure I closed that out you're good yeah (laughs) I thought I I put a do not disturb on sorry it's okay (laughs) um but yeah, it's just like, I guess it's kind of delved into like this whole um, different kind of way of thinking for me as well. Like all of these um, kind of egotistical kind of ways of thinking, like um, it's it's kind of caused me to get into like meditation and stuff like that because that kind of takes you away from that overthinking process or that, um, yeah, any, any kind of thing to do with that. So sorry, let's see if I can close that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, what meditation does for us really is pull us into reality and out of our heads, out of the past, which is memory, out of the future, which is imagination, where those two things aren't reality. They're not here. They're not now. Not to say that they aren't real, but they're not here. They're not now. They're not in the present. And in those instances, what meditation does for us is we're, we're here. We're able to look at the tools that the past has to give us, our memories, and look at a projected future. But like now is where we're alive. Now is where nothing else is going on except for what it is that we're giving our direct attention to. So I'm, I'm glad that you found uh, meditation to be something that has been useful for you. For sure. I just feel like it, it can give you that confidence as well to have that conversation with someone. Um, and I I have only had that conversation once, I think, since I've become um, single again. And that purely that is because um, one person that I connected with afterwards, I knew or already had the diagnosis. So we didn't, like we touched on it briefly and didn't have to go into too much detail because we're like, we both know it's fine, cool. Um, and then... Um, and then another person I connected with, um, I actually knew really well, and we've been really good friends for several years, so that made that easier as well, because you like, you know that we respect each other enough that, you know, we're not going to do this in a hurtful way, and, um, you know, we can take the precautions, and we're, we're you know, he's not going to disrespect me and, and then go running his mouth about that or, or whatever as well, so, yeah. Were these the kinds of things that you had to think about prior to your diagnosis in dating? Just no, someone no. sharing your secrets. Yeah, no, like you just—I don't know—you just kind of carefree. You don't really—you're like, well, I'm obviously not going to tell this person anything super, you know, uh, worrying about me or whatever. You know, anything I wouldn't want them to know. Um, 
but when it's when it's something like this where it's like they could have get it as well then there's that extra kind of level of concern or and it's just that stigma as well like isn't it like you know like because even on movies and stuff it's all it's always joked about like oh um you know they'll get herpes or something or something about you know we watched something today and <laughs> and one of my flatmates was like well herpes or something and I was just like <laughs> you know like because it's just such a it's that go-to thing of like like just mock it and what can we what can we just make fun of hangnails or something like instead right. of herpes say hangnail and see we'll yeah. see what that does to society yeah. the stigma yeah. is for many people who have gone through and learned to understand their bodies and what they need when they feel outbreaks coming and are able to take care of themselves the stigma is the most troubling part of a diagnosis period think about from the time that we first are really having any sort of stigmatizing experience with herpes when we're disconnected from it it doesn't really count it doesn't matter because we're not impacted by it and many of us don't think we know anyone who has it so the first interaction with stigma oftentimes is when we receive our diagnosis from the medical professional and how they deliver that diagnosis are they empathetic about it are they very direct and to the point what's the right way what's the wrong way depends on who you ask and from there how we are delivered our diagnosis often shapes how if we choose to disclose how we go about doing so um, and then even with the healthcare professionals I hear stories of people who are told by their doctor well just wear a condom or don't have sex when you have an outbreak and you can't pass it on and just general inaccurate information that continues to make uh, people make decisions that because they've received approval from a credible resource you, you can't get more credible than oh well my doctor said dot 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 as long as I use condoms or if I take the medication then I can't pass the virus on so I really work to not speak in absolutes especially with new partners who may not be positive for hsv and just let them know there is a possibility that i might give you herpes and there is yeah. nothing that can eliminate the risk yes i can yeah. make you feel better about it if i'm on antivirals we can wear a condom but that may not prevent skin to skin contact so there are also other ways that we can be with one another if we choose to move forward in that way uh have you faced any stigma since being back out there and dating because i imagine in the relationship it was nothing it never even came up really outside of that initial conversation so did you recognize any engagements with stigma beyond that um not towards myself um so, yeah, in terms of kind of people I've told or had conversations about it, um, anything that has kind of been like a, a stigma has been more out of lack of education from their point, right? So I told, um, I told one partner in um, 
it was only a few months after my breakup and then I also got another kind of once I got out the relationship I got another um STI check right just check over everything just you know make sure because well long story short he cheated on me and so I thought you know if he's been sleeping around I could have caught something um and I just wanted to make sure that I was fine um and then I took a picture of the screen of the results and I sent them to this this new bloke kind of thing and I was like oh yay FYI like everything else is clear kind of thing and he was like oh it's missing something and I was like what do you mean and he was like it doesn't say um HSV on it and I was like well no of course it doesn't they don't test for that like that's not that's not in the standard thing like a I already know I have it like you know I have it like (laughs) um b like it's not a standardized like in the kind of standardized tests and you only really can get tested for it if you have an outbreak type of thing. Um, I think blood tests are possible, but in the UK, they, they don't really even offer that. Like my ex, when he um, when he found out about it, he was he wanted to get a blood test to find out if he had it as well. And they just flat out refused. They were like, no, there's no point because the, the emotional kind of trauma that it causes is, is more than the actual thing itself and you're in a relationship you know so they they flat out said no he couldn't do a blood test but I was just like anyway from the next person who I told that and when he was saying like you know they're missing something on that on that STI screening like you're not fully clear I was just like whoa (laughs) you know like why are you bringing it up you know in terms of I don't know like in that kind of way of like um yeah we've already had that discussion like it just was just yeah I guess maybe him trying to be funny or something but I guess it just kind of gets back to that whole stigma of like oh it's a a massive deal and you always have it and you know that kind of misinformation as well in a way Mm -hmm. now where you are now it seems to be like a good place to me like just looking at your mannerisms and how you're talking about it how dating's been going for you um where are you now? What's happening in your life? Um, yeah, no, no, I, I am in a good place um, in terms of, you know, because I'm so comfortable, like, talking about it, and I'm lucky that I had friends who I could talk about it with, and they were open people anyway, and um, and that was early on in my diagnosis. And, and I think the main thing for me has always been that – you know, it's not about, like, for me, I'm not, it doesn't actually affect my life that much, like, I am, I am lucky I've had, I've had it for, what, two years, and I've had maybe, like, five outbreaks or something, but mine are quite small, um, so they're not, like, I can go without noticing them a lot of the time, um, and so, and I don't have to be on, um, antivirals or anything like that, so, for me, I'm like, it's, I forget I have it half the time, like, and then it's not until I start kind of talking to someone and getting a bit closer with someone, that I'm like, oh, that's right, got to bring that up as well, um, and then that's when it comes back in my life, um, and I'm just in a place where I've moved to a new city, so I'm, um, starting to enter the dating field there, and, um, and yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm in a good place where I can take it slow with people, um, but I, when it comes to it, I will be able to have that conversation with them. I've had conversations with people before about it. I, like I say, I've like done loads of research on it. Um, like emotionally, it doesn't affect me and I know it doesn't affect who I am, you know? How, um, 
useful were the resources that you found? Were there any particular ones that helped you more than others? I know you mentioned having a good support system and speaking to your friends was something that's helpful, but uh, you mentioned finding good information uh, was also helpful. So what did you have? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of it was um, was online. Um, basically, some resources that the doctor gave me. Um, there was just, uh, you know, like a, um, I can't remember the website, but it was like an official kind of website that they gave that was uh, with the New Zealand kind of medical team. I don't know <laughs> what our medical system's called. But, um, yeah, so it was it was kind of getting information from official sources like that and just reading more about it, um, things like this, like podcasts, um, and just, yeah, just places where they were having conversations that had accurate information, I guess. Um, so yeah, definitely official kind of, um, I think it's called like herpesorg.nz or something, you know, it's like a, um, official kind of organization. Um, and yeah, just kind of not letting like, misinformation you know like making sure I fully actually got that backed up you know what I mean like it wasn't um it wasn't like believe the first thing you read kind of thing and I think something that really helped me mentally shift from it as well was as soon as I read that it was you know a similar um kind of virus to like chickenpox and stuff like that right like it's 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 in the same family as that and that, for me, I just it kind of blew my mind. I was like, how are we having such a massive reaction to this when literally everyone pretty much has had chickenpox? And they, you know, they go out and they, they actually encourage kids to get chickenpox, to get it over and done with. And it's like, it's from the same family as that, and that has no stigma whatsoever. This is also a skin thing. like, And it's just, yeah, it's just bizarre that people are like, oh, you have it for life. Okay, cool. But it doesn't mean it's there 24-7, you know, 24-7, um, like, able to kind of pass it on and stuff like that as well, and which I think is just where the whole mess education and, and everything comes from. Mm-hmm. What do you think we need to counter the misinfer, the miseducation and misinformation that's out there? Um, just, like, a better kind of way of speaking about sex and, and everything and, and, and STIs and everything in school systems specifically. Um, you know, growing up, I remember um, being at high school and like the first year of high school, so I'm like 13 or something, um, and you're kind of getting into that field. And I remember this really almost traumatizing story about this, um, I don't know, it was, it was basically about a guy going down on a woman and basically um, you know, pulling out skittles from <laughs> from her vagina, right? Okay, sorry, this is going to get a bit bad. But these are the stories that go around schools, right, when you're young. And and apparently it was like, okay, he's counting the number of skittles that he's, he's retrieving, right? And it was like one, two, three, four. But there was only three sets of skittles in there, right? And so the whole idea of this weird little story was that the fourth one was a herpes cluster and like that was my first introduction to to the word herpes (laughs) to the idea of herpes anything like that and it was just this massive thing that was spread around the school like completely what that's um that's not even possible you know and um 
and it was just you know made such a massive deal of and everyone was like oh my gosh ew that's disgusting what the heck like you would never want that gross um did y'all have vending machines at your school what did you have vending machines at your school i'm just curious to know if skittles were in there (laughs) yeah yeah they probably were to be honest (laughs) i yeah i honestly don't know where that story came from but but it's just you know i guess being able to nip those things in the butt like but straight from the get-go and just kind of actually being like you know these these are stds or stis and this is what they do this is how you find them just kind of normalizing that conversation not making it like a, a, a big scary thing that happens once a year at school like maybe they should have that every day or you know it's just kind of making it a normal thing and getting people to even practice talking about it in a way mm-hmm. my only thing to add to that is that sex education omits a lot of relationship skills that young people ought to have when you equip young people with the tools that they need in order to navigate relationships manage relationships uh, identify abuse not be abusers be able to talk about consent functions of their bodies and boundaries those become healthy communicative adults instead what we're teaching young people is how to avoid important conversations, how to assume that everyone's on the same page, not just about sexual health, but about other things. Think about, uh, I think back to this tickling analogy that Melissa Carnegie from Sex Positive Families used that blew my mind about consent. There's a kid, two kids, one boy, one girl, younger sister, older brother, and they're tickling the older boy is tickling the girl and she's saying stop I don't want to but she's laughing and kicking and having a good time and he's like oh well she's saying stop but she's kicking and laughing so she doesn't really want me to stop that same interaction in adulthood with two people who aren't siblings of course is assault you're not hearing someone's no he feels entitled to her body because of the functions of it in adulthood it looks like oh well she's wet if she wasn't wet then she wouldn't be responding to it it wouldn't be okay and then from her perspective she's learned from a very young age that her no doesn't mean anything and that she just has to tolerate it until it's over so that simple analogy really put it into perspective for me and I look at how in adulthood I see people uh, who don't honor boundaries of other people who don't have their own boundaries and typically when you run into a situation where someone in the relationship doesn't have boundaries circling this back to the beginning here of how you mentioned that you were adapting to his needs and vice versa when you aren't able to go into these relationships with the tools necessary to navigate them the communication tools then it makes for a lot of assumptions being made it makes for again important conversations not being had and so if sex education were to just start to include those things and it doesn't even really have to be 100 percent about sex because sexual health and mental health are so interconnected with one another that 
if we just give young people the foundation of understanding consent and this is an example of pleasure this is an example of pain and here and, and this discomfort and you can say no and you need to learn how to hear no whenever we are able to have that kind of dialogue collectively to where it's not just exclusive to sex then i think that it'll click better and we'll have more of it universally um because for whatever reason it just seems like adults are scared to imagine that their young baby that came out of them is going to grow up into being a sexual person it's like that's how we got here that's how they got here you think they're not gonna you know do the thing (laughs) that got us here and if they choose to like that's their choice but there it's important to be able to talk to them in a way that allows for them to seek accurate consistent honest information that's going to be crucial to their health as well as their pleasure and the experiences that they have otherwise they'll just suffer and think that this is what it's supposed to be and feel as if they can't communicate in general 100 i think a lot of it actually goes down to um like it's so much broader than than sex like what you're saying because it's actually down to kind of how humans are kind of conditioned in society to act and and what's good and what's bad it's like this idea of like good and bad feelings right you know we feel shame for having a a diagnosis or we feel shame for um bringing up anything that could result in i guess someone else shaming you or someone else reacting negatively you know and it's kind of i think it's about this this idea of um like good and bad emotions and and kind of trying to teach people like kids for example if they're having a tantrum you know you're trying to shush them as soon as possible you know you're trying to like tell them no no no, you can't do that that's bad that's it's a bad emotion to have um rather than teaching them how to deal with that and and kind of how to feel that and process it and then get through that you know Mm um and it's never it's never that it's good or bad it's just that it's always it's convenient or it's inconvenient for the adults that are impacted by it so if your kids kicking and screaming at a grocery store if you see this then there's something there that's not able to be communicated right so you either have the patience for it or you don't have the patience for it and that's when you get into all these other ways of managing that that we don't have to go into on this podcast but uh, yeah that's thank you thank you for your energy thank you for sharing your story thank you for being here um and being as open and vulnerable as you have been uh before i let you go is there anything else that you want to leave us with or anything that i may not have asked you um no yeah i think i think the main things is just you know like educate yourself and um yeah and just you know make sure you're you're knowledgeable if, if you're getting into a circumstance where you're having to disclose anything uncomfortable just the more information you have yourself the more you'll have to to i guess be able to help someone else understand yeah well thank you jay she they <laughs> thank you on so this, much on this tuesday <laughs> that's all i got as far as rhyming goes <laughs> um, 
uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, everybody who tuned into the Instagram Live. Thank you to everybody who's listening and whenever it is that you're listening. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is connecting people who are living with and struggling with the stigma of the herpes virus to mental health resources, as well as community and a ton of other things, empowering uh, resources and really just doing what we can to help people navigate this space. Um, you can donate at www.spfpp.org. You can see different options to do so there. There's Venmo, there's uh, PayPal, as well as Patreon. If you do choose to become a Patreon subscriber, all you'll be doing is just paying monthly. Uh, set it and forget it. Uh, to be a part of the Patreon, I believe that these resources, these podcast episodes, need to be accessible for everyone. So I'm not going to put up any kind of a pay barrier if you support through Patreon. I mean, the only thing that you really get is just more access to me, but everybody has access to me. So uh, there's not really any incentive other than you're supporting our efforts to continue to get therapy for people. Uh, One of the things that we're expanding into is group therapy and doing yoga classes virtually. Uh, just as a way of introducing people to other ways of healing because therapy is expensive. I sat with this earlier today, actually, and released a blog on the Something Positive from Positive People blog, just sharing how discouraging it really has been as I negotiate rates throughout 2021 with therapists and just hearing some of the cost of it up to $170. I got a quote for $170 per 60 minute session with a therapist in Kentucky. I'm not demeaning anyone's experience or invalidating their education or undermining any of the costs that they put into their education to be able to charge $170. Like that's fantastic if you can do that. But the the luxury that is healing is something that I absolutely believe needs to be more accessible. And I've been fortunate to have been able to have a therapist, especially all throughout 2020. I think that that's the reason that 2020 has been so it was different for me. A lot of people talk about how bad it was, how challenging it was. A lot of people have lost people. They've lost things. They've lost jobs. Uh, and fortunately for me, I was out of work, but I was able to get unemployment for the duration of 2020 or unemployment assistance because um, I lost a lot of clients at the gym. I was also able to get my yoga teacher certification um, and I was also able to have therapy And the experiences that I had in therapy gave me the tools that I needed in order to consciously navigate the uncertainty of the pandemic. My life has been uncertain as early as I can remember. And so now that I want to approach it in a more conscious way, I've been able to take the tools that my therapist has provided me with and use those to consciously navigate my decisions and choices with a newfound state of awareness. And to be honest, I contribute a lot of the growing success of something positive for positive people, of course, not just to the guests who come on here and share their stories or the people who donate, but also to just being able to access therapy. And I was able to get my stimulus checks and continue to go with therapy after my trial ended. Uh, And it's been very useful for me. 
taking it back full circle, jumping into this, uh, this, this podcasting thing so soon after my herpes diagnosis, a lot of my healing has taken place through this. It's been a way of coping and fortunately it's been a healthy way of coping because there were times where I did things that uh, weren't the healthiest way of coping with my diagnosis, whether it be just trying to ignore it or not think about it or psych myself up to the point where it's like, well, you know, I'm okay. Uh, I don't need partnership. I don't need a girlfriend. I don't need to have sex. And you try and tell yourself something that you don't believe so long and eventually you just kind of explode on the inside. So what I want to do through something positive for positive people is make therapy more accessible because of all of the value that I've received from it. It's unfortunate that people just don't care about herpes. I'll be flat out. I've sought out funding for it and it's just not there. Um, The media, it's cool when it's cool. The healthcare field, it's not a big deal. But to us, it's so much more because it impacts our lives just so heavily. And even me being eight years into my own diagnosis, having this podcast, being open about it, having a nonprofit, still going to work every day, um, it has gotten easier to navigate. But whenever I see one of those herpes jokes or when I see someone who's really struggling with the stigma, those feelings come back up of just where I was prior to having had access to community, access to a licensed mental health professional. So that's what I'm doing here. This has evolved from being about exclusively sexual health to more of a focus on mental health because of just how much I've gotten out of my own journey and hearing from so many people who've been in therapy, hearing from so many people who have been part of community and found healing in that space, it's really encouraged me and empowered me to want to continue to do this in whatever way it needs to evolve in order for it to be efficient. So uh, moving forward, um, I have to talk to my board about this. So I can't really announce like what is going to change with something positive for positive people because I'm still going to do the podcast weekly. I'll still be interviewing people who are living with STIs about their experiences. And I have some really like businessy organizational uh, interviews that are coming up here soon that I'm excited about as well. So once I get those dates solidified, I'll begin to hype them up because I'm really pumped that a lot of this might turn into funding opportunities so that we can get more people treated or more people enrolled in being able to access mental health resources. So again, thank you. And you didn't have to sit here through that whole, however long that was, <laughs> spiel about what was going on with something positive for positive people, but I appreciate you doing so. Thank you so much. If you need to reach me, you can visit www.spfpp.org. I'm accessible through the website. There's a contact page. If you need to connect to therapy, if you need a support group, if you want to interview me for your podcast or do some type of media thing, or if you have access to people who may be able to support us with grants or funding opportunities, please don't hesitate to reach out. Like I'm really doing my best to reach deeply within the community here for additional resources before tapping outside of it uh, with people who don't have the lived experiences of what it means to navigate this virus. So 
Hit me up. Till next time, stay sex positive.